Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Today we have a special message from Dr. David Larson. We apologize for the technical difficulties as we missed the first couple of minutes of this message. But nonetheless, this is a special presentation and we hope that you are blessed by it. Exercise, right? Whoa, hey, there we go. Exercise. By the way, I've got a cold, so if I sound extra manly today, it's because of that. (laughs) No, getting into shape. Whenever we think of getting into shape, we think exercising, we think dieting, we think discipline, we think all these different things, right? Why do we think that? Why on earth do we think that? Is there a special shape? Like, is, is it, why don't we think of geometric stuff? Why don't we think of, like, circles and triangles, right? Those are shapes. The reason we think of exercise when we think of getting into shape is because we've been conditioned by our culture to think that getting into shape means exercising. If you translate this into Spanish or into another language, if you go to China and you say, man, I just need to get into shape, they'll probably look at you pretty funny. They'll be like, well, which shape? <laughs> like, which shape are you trying to get into, Right? And so I want to look at, and I want to continue a series that it sounds like has already been going on looking at the lies that we believe from the world and looking at the truth of God's scripture, right? Did you guys know, and I want to tell you that I feel so welcome in this place, that I feel so loved by each one of you and the people that I was able to hang out with and play worship with, and it was so awesome. And I want you to know, of course, of course you know this, God loves you. You guys know that, right? Do you guys know that Pastor Sherman loves you? Do you really know? Because the series that he's doing, this is not a make friends and influence people series. This is not a a win popular pastor of the year kind of series, right? This is tough stuff. These are the kind of, of series that step on toes and they get people offended. But Pastor Sherman is sharing this with you because these are the words of life. Because this is the truth and because love rejoices in the truth. So give them an extra hug after service today and tell them thank you for bringing you the truth, for not just settling for the lies, for not trying to be pastor popular, but for being the pastor who loves you guys. Amen? All right, Romans 12.2. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What on earth does that mean, right? If we're, if we're talking about the lies of the world and we're comparing that to the truth of Scripture, this is an iconic verse. This is the verse I think that should be the foundation for our stuff. I'm going to get a little geek and a little Greek on you guys this morning. Is that okay? Because I, I love, I'm a blue-letter Bible guy. I have the best job ever, guys. Seriously, seriously. I, have, I am so blessed. This is what my workday looks like, Right? I wake up, I get the coffee machine going, I go into my home office, and I make tools for people all over the world to be able to study the Word of God from my home, and, and they pay me for this. Isn't that cool? I was so, so thankful. And, and I even get chances to, to learn from different Greek scholars that they'll bring in, and they'll do some, uh, different workshops, and so I can learn parts of Greek. I'm not, I'm not a Greek scholar in my own right, but I have access to all these tools on Blue Letter Bible and other sites that are awesome too. Uh, to be able to really dig into the, the Word of God. We were talking earlier um, about, with Keith about how important it is to learn the original language and how empowering that is. Why is that empowering? Well, a couple reasons. We know, number one, the, the Holy Spirit is the one that interprets, interprets Scripture to us, right? So why on earth do you need to, uh, to learn Greek if you've got the Holy Spirit? Right? Well, because we're supposed to study to show ourselves approved. 
right? Because the truth is that there are tenses in Greek that don't exist at all in English. Did you know that? There's, there's a lot of English translations, and they're different. A lot of people ask why. The reason is because Greek is a totally, totally different language than English. Let's say that you, you took like this verse, right? And you put every word on a flashcard, and you shuffled those flashcards, and you laid them back out. Did you know that in Greek it would still make sense? You can't do that in English. Did you? We think about English, we have the past, the present, and the future, right? It's tense, I know. Um, so we've got the past, present, and the future. In Greek, they've got things like the errorist tense. The errorist tense is timeless and eternal. Dude! My mind can't even contain that. That's so cool, right? And so I want to look at what this verse is saying, not just on the surface, not just my interpretation of what the verse is saying, but digging into the original language and saying, God, what... Did Paul write here? What was he trying to tell the Romans? What's he trying, what are you trying to tell me, God? And praying that the Holy Spirit, who is the one who interprets Scripture to us, would reveal it to us, right? So do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Do not be conformed. That is what's called the imperative tense, that not be conformed. Imperative means that it's a command, right? In English, we call this the mom voice, right? No, <laughs> this is like serious, don't do this. It's not just, hmm, it's probably not a good idea. It's not, it's not just him just talking. It's an actual command. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. In Greek, they've got two words for world. One is cosmos, which sounds a lot like cosmos, right? And it's this idea of the whole entirety of creation. In, in John three sixteen, God so loved the cosmos. He loved the entire world, all of it, Right? And this is not that word. This word is ionai. If, you've got, if you look in your Bible, you might see some, some say age. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this age or this generation. The reason is because that's what that, that word means. It's where we get the word eon from, right? And so it says, don't be conformed to this generation, to, this, to what everyone says is right right now. Don't let that shape you. That don't be conformed. That's middle voice. What that means is that we're participating in this. We're not, we're not victims. Through our choices and through our activities, we participate in this letting the world shape us. Some of it's, some of it's accidental. Some of it's incidental. You guys, is anyone here in advertising? No one? Oh, good. Phew. No. <laughs> um, so billions and billions of dollars are spent on advertising every year. We've got the Super Bowl coming up, right? Which is like the, the crown jewel, uh, the annual crown jewel of advertising, Right? Why on earth do people spend so much money on these commercials? Because they think they can change what you think. They think that by this commercial, they can make you want this product. Or better yet, they can make you see this product not as a want, but as a need. People who make way more money than me spend lots of time working on those commercials who have studied psychology and all these different things to try to pull all the stops and say, how can we make every person who sees this video want to buy our product? Right? That's the point, right? And so all the time we're exposed to, to the influence of the world. Whether we choose to be or not, all the time we're exposed to this. Right? Think about like Christmas music. Why do they start, start playing Christmas music so early? Like, we, we, like, some people like to complain about that, right? It was because it gets you in that shopping mood. It gets you thinking, man, I haven't bought a single present yet. I'm so behind, <laughs> right? They should pro- Pretty soon they're going to start playing it in March. I'm just giving you guys the heads up, <laughs> right? So what we, if we're not supposed to be conformed to the pattern of this world, what are we supposed to do? Well, good thing it tells us, right? It says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect, now, there's some really, really cool stuff that's going on there. That transformed, that comes from the word, uh, meta, it's my metaphor, metamorphosis. That's the kind of word that it is there. And it's second person plural. 
Anyone here from Texas? No one from Texas? Really? Nice. Anyone, anyone from the South? The South has something really cool that we don't. The South has a second person plural tense. It's called y'all. Right? Okay, that's what this means. That's what this means. This is y'all. It means you guys, plural, right? So it says, and be transformed, y'all be transformed, right, by the renewal of your mind. This is so cool. So second person plural, present passive imperative. It's a command, right? Passive, what this means, guys, this is so cool. What this means, it's not something that we do. So there's, there's a couple different ta- uh, voices in Greek. One is active, and active is something you do. The boy hit the ball, right? That's active. Passive is the boy caught the ball. This verse is not saying you go out there and you transform yourself to know the world of God. It's saying the opposite, guys. It's saying that we can't. It's saying that by surrender, and that's the previous verse, that's the context, right? I beseech you, brethren, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, as your spiritual act of worship. Do not be transformed. That's the, that's the verse. That's the context, right? So in sacrifice, we surrender ourselves and we say, God, I made us thinking mess of my brain. I was looking at stuff I shouldn't have been looking at. I was spending time doing things I shouldn't have been doing. And I need you through your grace, God, to transform my brain, to reshape it. These are, these are present tense words. That means it's continual and ongoing. It's not something like, oh yeah, I did that once. I had God transform my brain. It was great. This is something that we continually do. As we're continually exposed to the world, we continually come to God and say, God, I want your model I want your shape. It's beautiful that by testing, and then this becomes active. Testing, you may discern the will of God. Does anyone want to know the will of God? Does it, really, wow. Does anyone want to know the will of God? I would love to know the will of God. I would love to know what God's thinking sometimes, right? I would love to be able to just say, God, I know what you're doing in this situation because I know your will. And that's faith. As we increase in faith, we get the ability to do that. We get the ability to see awful situations, not for the awfulness of that situation, but for the amazing transformative grace that God is working in that. Right? So by testing, you may know what the will of God is. And it gives us some qualifications. These are, these are identifications for the will of God. This is, these are some ways that we can know what the will of God is. The will of God is always good. The will of God is always acceptable. It's not something that you... That you that you can't have the ability to accept. And that the will of God is always perfect. Amen? Amen. Amen. You guys feeling more Greek? <laughs> Did you guys have your Greek yogurt this morning? <laughs> I want to look at this in the context of the Old Testament. So one of my favorite stories is you look at, you look at oh, when they went to go find the king, right? So they, the Israel wanted a king. They begged God. They said, we want a king, we want a king, we got a king. And, they said, and God finally relented and said, fine, get a king, right? And so they said, well, how are we going to pick our king? Hmm, should we have elections? No, no. I know who's the tallest. <laughs> and so they picked out Saul, and that worked out great. Not. And so Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, right, he's going. God says, look, you go to Jesse. One of his sons is going to be king. And so he's over there, and he says, he's looking at all of them, and he's saying, ooh, this one, this one's really tall. And God's like, really? Really? <laughs> and so he's like, oh, this one's really strong. This one's really, and, he, and God says, nope, 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 nope. To the point where he's like, um... This is a little embarrassing. Uh, do you have any other sons here? Like maybe one that's like not here. Maybe he was sick or something. I said, well, there's this one guy. His name's David. He's out taking care of the sheep, you know. We can bring him in. And sure enough, the guy that you wouldn't pick to be king 
God chose him. Because, because he told Samuel, do not look at his appearance or on his height or his stature. Because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees. Thank you, God, for that. But the Lord, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Proverbs sums this up in a kind of different way. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man. Have you ever seen the meme on the internet of, that seems legit, right? It's just like awful, horrible things. Like, why would you do that? And the person's like, hmm, that seems legit. Like, yeah, what's wrong with that, right? It's kind of that same idea. It says that we think that a way is right, but its end is death. So we've got a little bit of a disease. It's called a carnal mind, right? And our carnal mind wants to always think it's right. Let me, let me illustrate it for you in this way. How many people know more than one language? How many people know two languages? Three languages? Four languages? Nobody knows? <laughs> yeah, I know bits and pieces, but like fluent in like, I'm, I, I got two, right? And there's hundreds of languages, which means I know this much about languages, right? But my brain is like, oh yeah, language, you got this, right? <laughs> or let's, let's think about cultures. Like how many people have been outside the United States? How many people have been to one country outside the United States? Two countries, Three countries, four countries, good job. Four, three countries? Seven? Dude, seven, that's awesome. That's, I mean, there's hundreds, but, but seven is good, right? <laughs> right? There's hundreds of countries. So would you say that there's, there's more countries you haven't been to than by countries? Far. Yeah, by far, right? But our brains are goofy critters, right? How much, of the, how much knowledge in the universe do we have, Right? Like point zero 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 one percent. If if I'm bragging, right, right, point zero point all those zeros one percent of. I don't know what like I like to think I'm a people person. I know people, right? I've met thousands of them, right? So I'm only short like a couple billion, right? Right? But God knows every single person's heart. He knows every single country. He knows every single language. He knows the makeup of every planet in the universe. He knows where every star is. And he knows it by name. He knows every, every hair on your head. This is the God we serve. So why would we ever think that we know better than him? But we do it all the stinking time because there's a way that seems right to man. But its end is death. We think we can do these things, Nemo, but we can't, (laughs) right? Like, okay, so standard versus metric, right? Does anyone anyone want to weigh in standard versus metric? Which one's better, right? We call it standard. Do you know why it's called standard? Because it makes us feel good, right? (laughs) Do you know how much of the world uses standard measurements? America. America and like, I think... Pakistan, <laughs> right? The rest of the, of, the, of the world uses non-standard. They use metric. They actually know how many, like, units of this are in that. Like, if I were to say how many, you know, pints are in 5,000 gallons, you wouldn't know, because unless you're really, really good at math, like better than me, but, which is probably likely. But just because we're used to it, just because we're accustomed to it, doesn't mean that it's right. Just because our culture says this is the standard, this is what everyone uses, doesn't mean that it's right. Just because the majority of the people say that it's right, doesn't mean that it's right. And we see that time and time and time again throughout history. And repeated in the cycle of our own daily lives. There's a way that seems right to us, but it's not. (laughs) So non-rhetorical question, how does the world affect our walk with Christ? How does the world affect our walk with Christ? Sorry that that kind of ended up black on black. I don't know what happened there. 
How does the world affect our walk with Christ? We'd love to say it doesn't, right? I think all of us know better. That's the premise of this whole message. So be thinking about that in the back of your head. For instance, how do we measure success? We live in a culture that's largely driven by a value system that values uh, independence, that values ambition, that values productivity, right? That we measure success in quantifiable, I made this much money, I did this thing, I have this many boats, you know, right? Those are the values that our culture, better or worse, has, right? Is that the, are those the values that we're supposed to have as Christians? Let's dig into that. So I want to go through a couple of different myths that I believe have perpetrated into the, the Christian church that the world has affected through culture and through our allowance of things in the, in the church. Some of this might be uncomfortable. And I apologize for that, but the truth is the truth. And that doesn't mean that the truth gets rubbed in your face and makes you feel like you're an awful person. The Bible says that we're to speak the truth with what? Love. Love. And so please understand that when Pastor Sherman shares this stuff with you, when I share this stuff with you, it's not to tell you that you're a horrible person. It's to tell you that God has something better for you. That he loves you. And that he doesn't want you to end up in death. He wants you to have life. Right? It says that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And what is Jesus Christ? What does he say about himself? He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, right? So I want to, tell, I want to share a story with you about uh, Mary and Martha and Jesus. You've probably heard this before, right? But it's really sad if you look at it. Um, there's a sad portion to it. it comes, this one comes out of uh, Luke chapter 10, 39. You're welcome to turn there in your Bible if you like. Um, and this is the ESV translation. It says, and she, Mary, or Martha, had a sister called Mary, right? Who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, right? So here we go. We got Mary, right? Sitting at Jesus' feet, right? Just listening to Jesus, just soaking it up. What's Martha doing? But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to, do, to serve alone? Tell her to help me, right? Dude, this is so like siblings, Right? Right? Do you guys have kids? Do they do this? Right? Totally all the time. My, my kids are all the time like throwing each other under the bus. It's like, guys, you're, you're not going to make me love you more by making me love him less. That's not, that's not how it works. Right? <laughs> but they keep doing it. It's our, it's our nature. Right? And so Martha throws Mary under the bus. Right? She says, Lord, aren't you going to tell her, rebuke her, tell her to give me a hand? And she's surprised by what Jesus said. But the Lord answered her and said, Martha, Martha. Now, stop. You guys, if you have kids... You know that, like, there's different ways to address them, right? You can say, like, my, my kids, Ariana and Isaiah, are the oldest, right? And I can say, Ariana, or I can say, Ariana and Nicole, right? <laughs> like, that's, well, that's getting serious, right? But if I, were to, if I were to say to her, Ariana, Ariana, that's like, what I'm about to tell you is something that, I, that I'm telling you because I love you. I want to get your attention, and I want to tell you something that comes from my love for you. It says, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Years after that, I don't think anybody's going to remember, you know, when Jesus was at her house, who was serving, you know, the, the hors d'oeuvres or who washed whose feet, you know. Those things are important. But the one thing that's necessary isn't the cultural standard that Mary was trying to, or that Martha was trying to live up to. It was spending time with Jesus, Right? 
It says she was distracted with much serving. Did you know that that can happen in the church? You know, my number one thing that I was scared of in accepting a pastoral role, do you know what it was? I've met pastor's kids, <laughs> right? And some of them are just so wonderful and beautiful, and you're like, God, you're doing such an amazing thing. You look at generation after generation of pastors and like just God's hand sovereignly over these families, and you're just like, God, you're so cool. Wow. And you look at like others, and you're like, you're whose kid? <laughs> like, what? Really? <laughs> right? And I want my kids to know that I love them. I want to be there for them. And I don't want ministry, even doing something good, to rob me of my, my ministry first to my family. Right? It's the same way that we can become distracted with serving to where we get so obsessed with the things that don't really matter that we forget the one needful thing. Myth number one, a good Christian is a busy Christian. This isn't an excuse to be lazy. It's a question of priorities, right? We see this in the Bible. It says, be still in Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will exalt I will I'll be exalted in the earth, right? If you look at the context of that, this isn't God just chilling and relaxing in his easy boy chair, right? This verse inexplicably occurs in the middle of a whole recitation of God's awesomeness. Like if you look at it, it's just like God did this awesome thing and this awesome thing and he's a stronghold and behold his power and he, he lays armies to, to, uh, to, to waste and he makes wars cease and he's just like this awesome, awesome God. And then it summarizes it with, so chill out. Be still and know that I am God. Not just be still and like, just let your mind go blank, but dwell on God's goodness, right? In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, it says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Again, Matthew 5, 5, the Beatitudes, right? It said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So the question we have to ask ourselves as individuals and as a church is, are we busy are we distracted? Right? Myth number two. Blessed Christians are rich and popular. Now you guys are going to laugh, right? Go ahead, it's okay. Right? That this seems on the, like, who would believe that? Come on, really? But we do. But we do. If you dig down and you think about in your theology and you look at other Christians, you're like, why am I not blessed like that person? And usually it's in the context of, like, why don't I have what that person has, Right? <laughs> We tend to think that God's blessings always take a material slant. That the people who have the most wealth have the most blessing. And God's paradigm doesn't work like that. That's a cultural thing that we, accept, that we adopt. In culture, we judge people like that, right? In culture, we measure success monetarily and by accomplishments and all these different things, right? But that's not how God's blessings work. Sometimes, sometimes, but not always, right? And we, don't, we can't... I tried to, you know, because this is a serious thing. I tried to find a funny picture for this slide. It would break your heart, the things I found. Just trying to find a funny picture for this. Like the Christians that are just so distracted with wealth. Like huge Christian figureheads that people look up to that have just taken the church's money to build these monuments themselves. And guys, I'm not saying that as an indictment against them. I'm saying that as a warning to myself. Does that make sense? And to each one of us, not to get, not to get obsessed with ourselves and with things that don't matter. I think the story that best illustrates this comes out of uh, Mark chapter 10. You can find it in the other Gospels in Matthew and Luke. But it's about a rich young ruler. You can turn there if you want to read along. Basically, you've got this guy, right, who is rich. 
He's young and he's in charge. He's got it all working out for him, right? But he, he approaches Jesus in an interesting way. It says he throws himself at Jesus' feet, like he kneels down before him and says, Rabbi, he says, teacher, teacher, right? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? He's got the wealth, he's got the power, he's, got, he's just missing one thing, he just needs the eternal life, right? And then he'll be set, right? And he knows that Jesus can give it to him, right? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There's only one good, or there's no one good except for God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. Right? That's some of them, right? You guys know that there's more than 10 commandments, right? I think 167, if I remember right, in the Old Testament, right? And the guy has the audacity to reply to this. He says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. I can just imagine Jesus looking at him like, for reals now, right? But no, Jesus gives him the benefit of the doubt, right? And Jesus, looking at him, listen to this, Jesus looking at this guy who just, by all accounts, just told a bald-faced lie to Jesus' face. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come and follow me. Now, I want you to see something really important here. This took me a while to catch. Maybe you guys are way smarter than me, and you caught it the first time. I didn't. Jesus is not testing this guy. Jesus is not putting some huge burden on this guy. Jesus is not telling you to go sell, right, in the, through this passage, to go sell all your stuff. That's sweet. If, if God calls you to do that, that's awesome. But if it's not with love, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us it's useless. It's annoying. It's a clanging symbol, right? Jesus looked at him, and he loved him, and he knew that the one stinking thing that was keeping him from God was all this junk, So Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, go sell all your stuff so that you can come with me so we could be together. Do you understand that that's what the Bible is about from cover to cover? God just wanted to be with you. And we screwed it up and God sent his son to die for us so we could be with him again. That's what God wants out of this guy. He doesn't want to put a heavy burden on him. He doesn't want to test him. He doesn't want to try him. He doesn't want to kick him while he's down. He wants to be with him. He says, come and follow me because I love you. And perhaps the saddest scripture, the saddest verse, it says, disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Because it's so distracting, guys. I preached a very controversial message at my church a while back in which I said, I thank God, thank you God, that I am not wealthy. That slaps our culture in the face. But I know, I know that I couldn't handle it, guys. It would be too much of a distraction. It would be too easy to depend on myself and to say, I got this. It would be too easy to be that church in Revelation 3 where they say, oh God, we are rich and we have need of nothing. And he says, you are blind and wretched and poor. Is money evil? No. But it sure can be the cause of a lot of evil. Maybe blessings don't always look like money. Right? 
It says in Mark 4, it says, but the cares of this world, it's talking about the seeds of the gospel, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. If you feel like your walk is being choked, maybe you're distracted. Because that's what it does. That's what getting obsessed with the things that this world cares about does to our walk. It chokes it, like straight on, like strangling. If you feel like in your Christian market, it'll walk sometimes, like you just can't get a breath. Maybe it's, maybe it's the deceitfulness of riches. I, found, I know that because I've found that to be true in my life. This is not me pointing fingers at you guys. This is things that God's shown me. In James 2.5, it says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. The context here is that the, the church that James is writing to was a mess, guys. They would take the poor people and they'd make them sit outside and sit in the back and they'd take the high tithers, right? And they'd put them right in the front in the seat of honor and they'd rub their feet and they'd kiss their rings and they would just shower them with praise and adoration while completely ignoring the, the poor people. And James said, no, no, that is what the Romans do. That is not what I have called you to. God does not want us to be sycophants looking up to the rich and envying them. He wants us to realize the treasures that he's given us to the point where those who have wealth in the world look at us and say, what is it you've got? How can I inherit eternal life? That's the kind of ministry that Jesus had. That everywhere he went, people said, that guy has something I do not. <laughs> and I want it. That's what it looks like to be the light of the world, right? Myth number three, mature Christians don't have struggles. Again, on the surface, it seems laughable, right? But I know Christians who believe this. I know Christians who are too ashamed to talk about their struggles with other Christians because they're afraid they're going to be judged, and that's not right. I went to a, a men's prayer breakfast a while back where... Uh, at the very end, after the speaker talked, right, we had bacon, because you got to have bacon at the men's prayer breakfast. And then the speaker talked, and then he, we, he said, well, I want you guys to break into small groups and pray. And so we're all strangers from all kinds of different churches. And so I get into a gr uh, group of uh, two or three guys, right? And so I've got three guys in my group. And on this side is like Mr. Businessman. He's like sharp dressed, and he's like got it together, and he looks like all proper, and like his life is in order. On this side was a gentleman who was paraplegic. I think that he had a cerebral palsy or some... I don't know exactly why, but he was, you know, like, sometimes you just don't know what to do, you know? And I confess that my heart was not in the right place, guys. I didn't know what to do with this guy. I didn't know where to even start with him. And so I turned to the business-looking guy, and I say, brother, how can I pray for you? <laughs> right? Like we do, right? You know what this guy tells me? He says, oh, ha, I'm, I'm good. I, I don't need prayer for anything. I, uh, I'm good. And my heart was so hurt, guys. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This guy who says, I am rich and I have need of nothing. Now that's, that's a judgment. I, forgive me if I'm judging his heart wrong. Only God knows his heart. But on the surface, that's what it looks like. Is a person who says, I don't need any more blessings from God because I've got everything I need. And so I turned to the other guy and guys, you would not believe what God showed me about this precious man of God. I, I weeped the whole way driving home. 
Because God said, what you looked at and you rejected, that's what I call beautiful. This man that the world would look at and say, he's good for nothing. He can't even pick, he can't even walk. God says, that's my son, and I have created him exactly how I want him to be, and he loves me, and I love him, and I'm going to use him, who the world says, this guy doesn't have anything to offer to show you what you're missing. Sometimes it takes a slap in the face like that for us to realize that we've been taking the lies of the world. I have struggles. I am a sinner redeemed by grace alone. Without God's grace and his sovereignty and his mercy, which I in no way deserve, I have no right being in this building or on this stage or on this planet. The one thing that I have earned through my entire life, despite all my accomplishments, is hell. That's what I earned. It says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. By grace alone. And so here in Colossians 4, 3, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, Hebrews 13, 8, 1 Thessalonians 5, 25, is over and over and over again, Paul, or depending on who you think wrote Hebrews, somebody who wrote the books of the Bible saying, I need prayer, <laughs> right? If Paul can, can write to other churches that he's rebuking and say, pray for me, I think each one of us can find something to ask for prayer about, Right? <laughs> God, you are so good. Thank you. Galatians 6, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourselves, lest you be tempted. And then it goes on to say, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are called as Christians to support one another, to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to keep each other accountable, right? And I hope that that's what's going on. I hope that that's what you guys do. So often, Christians are, are seen as judging, as when somebody comes and with a transgression and, and confesses that, that the first thing that they expect is, is judgment, because that's what the world gives you. But the church should be different, right? James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The context there, verse 4, just before, it says, do you not know that friendship with the world is, en is enmity with God? Now, this is not saying that we're to hate the world in any way, shape, or form, but that we are not supposed to... Take the world's values and call them our friends. That we're supposed to live lives that are different. You guys know Jesus prayed for you. He prays for you continually, but he prayed for you in the Gospels. He says, I pray for those who are to come, right? You know one of the things he prayed for you? He said, Father, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. Sanctify. Think about that. We're going to dig into that a little bit deeper. A little bit. So sanctification, that's a big word, right? Does anyone know what sanctification means? It's a Christianese term we like to use. Anyone, if you know, just throw it out there. It's cool. Go ahead. You're right. You have it right. Louder. Set, Set apart. That's what it means. Set apart for like a special purpose, for a special use, right? We like to say like, I'm sanctified. But I don't know if we really understand what that means. It's like saying, I ride on a different bus. Right? <laughs> or like, <laughs> Right? I'm set apart. Sometimes we like to be sanctified, but we want to, we want to do it with the popularity, Right? We don't want that to mean that we're ostracized, right? Which is another word that means the same thing in some senses, but has a different connotation to it. So Acts 26, 17 through 18, it says, and this is, if you guys know, this is Paul, right? 
says, I will deliver you, Paul Saul, from the Jewish people and from, as well as from the Gentiles. I think that's two. Sorry, I think that's Acts 2, 17 through 18. And from the Jewish, from the Gentiles. Now let's see here. Paul was a Jew, right? On, on the planet, there's two kinds of people, right? There's Jews and non-Jews, right? There's Jews and Gentiles. So God's saying, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the, the Gentiles. Really? Who am I going to be with then? Because <laughs> that's all the groups. That's everyone, right? What club am I going to be part of, right? And deliver, like can you imagine like God saying, I will rescue you from the people you belong to, from the people you call family, right? I will deliver you out of that. That's powerful stuff. To whom I now send you to open eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Again, there's that word, sanctified by faith in me. We can't show the world what they're missing if we're doing the same things as them. Right? We can't show the world that they're missing out on the love of God if we don't have the love of God or if we hide it. There is nothing more relevant than truth and love. There's a movement, and I hate to judge the hearts of those who have started it because I think that it, it's, its start was founded out of love, wanting to include people, which is beautiful. But there's a movement in the church, the general church today, that says we need to be more relevant Right? We need to change the music we play. We need to change the shirts we wear, the way that we dress. We need to change how the churches look and all these different things. And on the surface, there's nothing wrong with that, guys. Changing arbitrary things is, is okay. But you don't change the truth. You can't. When you change the truth, it becomes what? Anything less than 100% true is what? You see, I've gone through a lot of school. That's how you get to the whole doctor thing. You go through lots of school. <laughs> and I've read lots and lots of textbooks from lots and lots of people. And you know, a lot of those were second editions. They were third editions. They were fourth editions. Some of them were like 14th editions. You know what that means? That means that they made it better. That means that they took out stuff that wasn't true and fixed it. And they, that, wasn't, that was a typo. That was a mistake. And they made it better, 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 better. You know what? I've got a first edition Bible. My Genesis is first edition. It goes all the way back to when Moses wrote it down. And they never had to make it better. They never had to make it relevant. That's what truth looks like. And it's beautiful. Jesus says, I, it says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. You don't have to update him. You don't have to make him look like a hipster, right? God, you are so good. Thank you. In Hebrew, in Matthew 24, it says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And then again, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love never fails, but wherever there are prophecies, they will fail. Wherever there are tongues, they will cease. Wherever there is knowledge that puffs up without love, it will vanish away. But the two things that are eternal there, truth, God's word, which is truth, and love. And you can't separate them. Half the church wants to take love and run with it and abandon truth. The other, church, the other part of the church wants to take truth and run with it and forget love. And God knew this was coming. I mean, it's all throughout the Bible. You look at the letters that Paul wrote. You look at the letters of the churches in Revelation. Nothing's changed. Right? God knew. <laughs> I 
As Christians, we should not try to fit in as if that were something to be strived after, as if to say that our goal in ministry is to be just like other people. You see, the thing is, sin, no matter how you paint it, is uncomfortable. Finding out that you're a sinner, that's uncomfortable. You can't sugarcoat that, right? Except with love. And isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that what he still does? So as Christians, we're called to do things and to be things that are weird to the world. We're to be salt and light. What does that look like? Have you ever, have you ever been in a dark, dark place? We went into a, this series of caves that were like so crazy dark. You turn off your headlamp and you're like, I have no idea which way is up. Like it's that dark. You can feel it. It's like you can grab it with your hands and feel this darkness. And you'll see like a pinpoint of light, like a shade of, of light that's lighter in one, in one area. Then you gravitate toward that. That's what it means to be the light of the world, right? Salt. Has anyone had like, had like French fries that were unsalted? And you're like, wow, this just needs something. Or chips, right? And you're like, when you have the salt, you're like, that transforms it. Like, it's great. It's tasty. As Christians, we're supposed to be tasty. <laughs> Does that make sense? The things that we say should be like, I want that. That's awesome, right? We shouldn't be ashamed of it. We're to not fear death, right? You look at Revelation 2.10, it talks about those who were faithful even unto death, Right? That's beautiful. Or to bless those who curse you. In what world does that make sense? What country is that the norm, right? I think when, when Jesus wrote some of this stuff, they're like, wait, can you run that by me again? <laughs> like, right? It doesn't make sense except in God's culture and God's paradigm. It doesn't make sense except that it's the truth. We're to count it all joy when you suffer. In James chapter 1, it opens with that, right? James writes a letter of encouragement to this church and says, hey, count it all joy when you suffer. I looked at that word all in Greek. You know what it means? All. <laughs> There's no getting out of it. It literally means all. It means everything when you suffer. That's joy. That's the God that we serve. And that's not a fake joy. That's not like, ha I'm so happy I've lost everything. What that is, is that saying, I trust you, God. I trust you. I know that you're going somewhere beautiful with this. It's not fake. James 1.4, it goes on to say that, that through that, through counting it all joy, through enduring trials that were to be perfect, uh, mature and complete, lacking nothing, that that's what, what God's faithfulness does to us. That's what enduring trials does to us. Is it makes us mature, lacking nothing. We're to trust God's word more than modern wisdom. It says that God has chosen the, the wisdom of this world to... to make a mockery of, of wisdom, that, that his ways are so different that the wise can't understand it. And God's chosen the foolish things of this world, like me, like all of us, if we're honest, right? That we're to walk by the Spirit and bear its fruit, right? To bear the fruit of the Spirit. This is so awesome, guys. When you read the fruit of the Spirit, right, Galatians 5, you know what's really cool? It says the fruit of the Spirit, are like, yeah, okay, where's the rest? <laughs> it says the fruit of the Spirit. The one fruit of the one Spirit. If you look at Greek, it's very, very specific that that's a singular thing. That that one fruit is all those beautiful things. Love and patience and faithfulness and gentleness and, and joy and peace. Isn't that cool? That's the God that we're supposed to serve. That's the fruit that we're supposed to have through God's Spirit. We're to, to choose to love selflessly. 1 Corinthians 13. If you're looking for like a place to do your devotion, that's beautiful. 
Read through 1 Corinthians 13. It contextualizes. It's great. It's like this sandwich. So, so Paul's talking about like the gifts of the Spirit, right? And then he says, God gives you all these cool stuff and all this cool stuff. And he says, but wait, let's, let's contextualize this. Love is the most important thing, right? He says, I don't care if you have all knowledge. It literally says that. If, you've, if you know all mysteries, right? If you have not love, it's useless, that's so awesome. That's what we're supposed to be about. And that's, that's a joyful thing, guys. That's awesome. In order to proclaim hope with gentleness and respect, right? We're used to this. A lot of you might even have this memorized. First Peter 3.15, it says, always in every season having, being ready. So sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart. Always being ready to, to give uh, defense to the hope that's within you. And then we usually leave off the last part, which says, and do so with gentleness and respect. That we're supposed to not be mean in the way that the world is mean with truth. That in the world, they like to gloat it over to you and they like to say, this is truth, ha ha, right? And make people feel foolish for not having it. We're supposed to do it with gentleness and respect. And isn't, guys, isn't that how God deals with us? All of you are so beautiful. You've been on so many different journeys. God's brought you from so many places. And the way that he brought you, I know, is through his loving kindness. I know that because the word of God tells me that he draws us near with his loving kindness. The one who has every right to rub it in your face chooses to love you instead. Shouldn't we do the same? So I want to close with a word about faith. God, you're so awesome. So in John chapter 6, if you read it, it's It's amazing. Jesus is giving this message and there's thousands of people all over and they're following him and he's got this, he's just really, really popular at this point, right? And he gives this message that's talking about the communion that's to, that's to come, that's talking about the atonement that's to come and they don't get it. Literally to the point where they say, we can't even hear these things. These things that you're speaking, we can't even hear these things. It's, it's the verse, I don't know if you remember, where he says, if anyone would have eternal life, he must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And they say, yeah, we can't do that. That's horrible. Why would you say that, right? And to, in that generation, in that age, that wouldn't have made any sense at all. We know, because we know what Jesus did and what he had planned, even back then, what that means. But they didn't. And they left. They left. They abandoned him, right? And so he turns to his disciples and he says, therefore Jesus said to the 12, he said, you don't want to go away too, do you? Are you guys going to leave too? And Peter says something amazing. He says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, who will we go to? Who will we go to? You alone have the words of eternal life. I'm here to tell you, I, I don't understand all of the Bible. I don't understand everything that God does. I don't understand why we go through certain things, and that's okay. Because God's ways are higher than mine. Thank God. Thank God that he knows more than me. And so if you're going through, so through a hard time right now, just know that God is faithful. That God is so faithful. And if, you, if you're not going through a hard time right now, you probably have a hard time coming sometime soon. <laughs> and when that happens, just know that God is faithful. That he wants for you what every good parent wants for their children. To come to maturity and to experience love. Amen? And the last verse I want to share is Hebrews eleven six. 6. It says, Now without faith, 
it is impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. This Christian thing, it doesn't happen without faith. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. At some point, you're going to have to say, yes, there's tons of evidence. That's awesome. And yes, I've seen God show up over and over and over and over again. And you're going to have to move that from believing that he's God, which even the demons believe, right? And say, not only do I believe that you are the Son of God, the Messiah, but I trust you. Even when my brain tells me don't do it, even when it makes no sense, I trust you. Let's pray. God, you are so awesome. And I thank you, Lord, that you alone have the words of eternal life. And that you don't hoard them, God, but you share them with us lovingly. I thank you for your word that is truth. That in this age where morality is determined by majority vote, God, that you have established truth. Just as you established the, the laws of physics and creation. Just as you told the ocean, you can go this far. God, I thank you that you are sovereign and that you know everything. And that you still choose to love me. And God, I just want to surrender to you. And ask you to build my faith, to encourage me to trust in you more and more in each one of us, Father, through whatever means you deem necessary, God, so we can know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.